ultimate son out of Israel, out of Egypt, back in Israel, now listen to this, for a far greater deliverance, right? For a far greater exodus, for a far greater redemption. Why was Jesus born into this world? Matthew 1:21. for he shall save his people from their sins. So Hosea was talking about their deliverance from Egyptian captivity. The greater son of Israel, Jesus, was brought out of Egypt for our deliverance from sin's captivity. That's the idea right there. And I don't know how much you know about Christmas, but I would say this. The point of Christmas is ultimately a cross. He was born to die. The cradle preceded the cross. Anybody remember that fancy word, hypostatic union? Which means Jesus is 100% man. That means he can take your place, an apple for an apple, right? He can be your substitute. But he's also 100% God, which means he has enough money in his wallet to pay the price. Only God can absorb the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin. That's what Jesus did. And, and not just la last three weeks as we kicked off Matthew, but each and every week here at Restore Church. I invite anyone and everyone who will to respond to the message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I cannot say this enough. Jesus Christ, we're talking about, the, we're talking about pain, right? Jesus Christ came to save you from the eternal pain of separation from God in a place called hell. Maybe a lot of churches, a lot of pastors don't want to mention hell. Jesus talked about hell, therefore we should talk about hell, even on Christmas. Jesus Christ came to save us from the penalty of sin, which is everlasting separation from God. That's a sobering message, but we can celebrate that Jesus delivers all who trust in him, right? But he also came, and I'm guessing this year, maybe you're a Christian, but you suffered because you made some dumb, sinful decisions. Because we all do, right? We all have. I've made them. Have you made them? Yeah, thank you, Ryan, up in the AV booth, yes. It's true, though. And Jesus Christ came to save us from the earthly consequences of sin and the unnecessary misery we, we experience because we choose to go our own way instead of walking the Savior's way. So listen, if that's you, if you're tired of your sin, there is hope in the one who came into the world expressly to take the penalty and break the power of sin in our lives. And then the first point with this great old song. I love the songs you guys have been picking, so full of truth. There's a song called, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing My Great Redeemer's Praise. But it goes like this. He break, I think I'm quoting the right song. He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets, here it is, prisoner captivity. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for me. So I just want to tell you, there is no stain of sin so deep that the blood of Jesus Christ can't wash out as divine Ajax. The only question is, will you come to him? He gives hope in the face of the pain of our sin because he died to pay the penalty. Number two, Jesus Christ not only gives hope in the face of the pain of our sin, he gives hope in the face of the pain of our grief. Notice as we pick back up in the text at Herod's response. Verse 16, then Herod, 
when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he's livid, he's raging, he becomes furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. What's going on is there is, is Herod is ticked, livid, as we read, that the magi or wise men tricked him, so he, he does the best he can with their help to ascertain how long earlier Jesus Christ was born. And just to play it safe, he says, you know what? He sends his henchmen to go into Bethlehem and kill every male infant two years and below. Can you imagine that? I mean, this is genocide right here. This is straight out mass murder. I want you to know this. The first Planned Parenthood was not started by racist Margaret Sanger. It was started by Herod, this bloodthirsty, do anything to preserve my power at all cost, tyrant, when he ordered this murderous edict. Only, only. Here, as we see in the text, the mothers did what we should all do in the face of this holocaust. Instead of rejoicing at these death rallies, we should do what they are, weeping and lamenting. Look at this. Let's dial into verse 18. Verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, this is another Old Testament quote. First Hosea chapter 2, now Jeremiah 31, 15. What's going on? The context is this. Way back in Jeremiah, Israel had been overrun, as God said they would if they walked in disobedience, by the Babylonian Empire. As a result, the survivors of this, of this massive invasion by the Babylonian Empire, the survivors, children included, are loaded into a caravan and brought to Ramah, about five miles north of, of Bethlehem, as a staging point for them then to be carted deep into Babylonian territory as prisoners of war to be used in all kinds of ways or just killed. Imagine, going back to that Old Testament scene, imagine the sorrow and grieving that happened for the mothers of, of Israel when that happened, right? When Babylonian took over and took their kids and did all kinds of terrible things. Maybe the image that comes to my mind is, is, is a train being a cattle car on the way to Auschwitz being loaded up. Can you imagine people's responses? Because they know what happens at the end of that train line. In Jeremiah 31 verse 15, what Matthew's quoting here, Rachel is being used, now listen to me, as representative of of the mothers of Israel. This was a common thing. It's, it, this is reflected in the Old Testament itself, but the rabbis often called um, um, Rachel the mother of Israel. She was called the Mater Dolorosa of the Old Testament, that is the mother of sorrows of the Old Testament. So here, in Jeremiah 31, 15, going back to that, Rachel is weeping as children are being carted away to who knows what as any mother would or should, right? Well, in Jeremiah, what's being, what's being represented here is Rachel 
is weeping as children are being carted away. That's Jeremiah 31, 15. She dies for people, for the kids who would die. She, she weeps for the kids who would die in exile. But here in Matthew, why are the mothers weeping? Why are the mothers weeping in Matthew? Because of the genocide, right? Because of all the babies killed indiscriminately. Males, two-year-old and under. Now, is this a scene of joy, rejoicing, celebration, or not? Decidedly not, right? This is a scene of deep, 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 seemingly inconsolable grief. Mothers weeping because there's babies plucked out of their arms and, and killed. So you ought to be asking me, well, wait a second, Mike. You just said, point two, Jesus gives hope in the face of the pain of grief. Where's the hope right here? I'm glad you asked that question. Matthew, now stay with me. Matthew is doing something and quoting from, of all places, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is called what prophet? Does anybody remember? The weeping prophet. Why is he called the weeping prophet? Because baby, it's a lot of bad news. Stuff that you should weep about. But chapter 31, right there up in the heart of that book, is actually a chapter that's known as a chapter of hope in the midst of all this suffering and stuff we should be lamenting about. For instance, it's in Jeremiah 31, I think it's verse 3, where God says to a people, though you are widely out, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. <laughs> How about that? I've loved you with an everlasting love. He even says this in verse 17. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Yeah, they've been carted off. They will come back. And then every Christian who's been a Christian any amount of time has heard of something called uh, the new covenant promises of Jeremiah 31. Remember when he says, I'm going to rip out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh so that you can see your sin and run to the Savior. This is how it goes. Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt and they wild out. They broke my covenant, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. No. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my spirit within them and I will remember their sin no more. Great Hope in the midst of all this sorrow. I like the way Sean O'Donnell brings this all together. In Jeremiah 31, Rachel's tears, the tears of exile, have reached their climax in the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem, Matthew chapter 2. In other words, with Jesus, this trail of tears is finally coming to an end. The tears of the mothers of Bethlehem inaugurate the reign of the one who will shed tears of blood for the forgiveness of our sins and who will eventually, eventually, not right now, but eventually, in the restoration of all things, wipe away every tear. That's in Revelation 21, verse 4. When God takes out his divine Kleenex and he wipes away every tear. So yes, there are tears shed right now, right? You might shed tears tonight. 
You may have shed tears yesterday. You might shed tears tomorrow because of any number of those things I, I mentioned by way of introduction or other things that can bring sorrow to our hearts. But we take by faith this truth. The time is coming when this trail of tears will end because he will wipe away every tear. With Jesus, there's hope in the face of our grief because one day that grief is gonna be gone. And right now it's a little bit of a mixed bag, right? There's joy and there's grief. Y'all with me? Here's the last thing that God has to say from this text. We see number one, Jesus gives hope in the, pace of our, in the face of our sin. I hope you turn from your sin and trust him. Jesus gives hope in the face of our grief. In your grief, I hope you continue to look to him. Third and finally, Jesus gives hope in the face of our shame, of our shame. Herod here in this last section of chapter two finally meets his maker. I don't think it was a good day. I don't think he's doing too well right now. He meets his maker, and so the angel once again tells Joseph something. He tells him it's okay to go back to Israel. Look at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Herod's no longer a threat. So he rose, Joseph, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So Herod's sons, when Herod died, his sons weren't as strong as leaders as he was, so uh, Rome broke up that area into three kingdoms, giving each of them to three of his sons. Like father, like son. The sons were brutal like their father was. So the angel then warns Joseph, and this is how it all plays out. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this is the third prophecy we find fulfilled in tonight's passage. But the, here's the thing, here's the conundrum, here's the difficulty, here's the rub. There is not one Old Testament prophecy that says Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So what you doing, Matthew, just freewheeling, you going rogue? Saying, I'll just say whatever I want, because this is the Bible. What, what's going on here? Well, the key is this. And all the other prophecies mentioned to this point too tonight, but we've seen others in previous weeks, it will say prophet singular. It will say that it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet singular. But is it singular or plural right here? Look down at the text. That it might be fulfilled that what was spoken by the prophet. See that it's plural. It's plural. So it's like Jesus is saying... It's like the text is saying, ultimately the Holy Spirit, the author of Scripture is saying, is Jesus here is not fulfilling one single verse or promise by one single prophet. Rather, he is fulfilling a concept communicated by many prophets all through the Old Testament. I want to show you that, but does that make sense so far? A concept. 
And if time allowed me, and it does not at this point, I just looked at my watch, I would, I would spend some time in showing how the word Nazareth has in the Hebrew its root branch, and how Jesus was called the branch of David, right? The stump of Jesse, a branch of righteousness, that's Isaiah and Zechariah and all over. But I'm gonna cut to the chase and give you the big idea is what was, basically what the prophet said about Jesus is, hey man, he ain't coming from some fancy background, right? He's not coming from some cosmopolitan area, but instead from a very shameful, if not plain, background, well, sort of like the city of Nazareth. Anybody know about Nazareth? What Nazareth was like? Was it a cosmopolitan city with high-end lofts for 1,100 bucks, you know, with all the new bars and restaurants and stuff. No, man, it was a backwoods, Hickfield kind of place, podunk. Nazareth wasn't seen as much. Well, do you remember when Philip meets Jesus? And as we talked about with Steve, when someone really meets Jesus, they want other people to meet Jesus. So Philip goes to his buddy Nathaniel says, hey, Nathaniel, won't you come and see? Come see, we have found him, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember that? And what does Nathaniel say? I'm right on the way. No, he's kind of a smart Alec. Do you remember what Nathaniel says? He's mocking, he's biting. He says, can any good thing come out of that Hickville place, Nazareth, right? Do you remember that? He's, he's, he's mocking him, he's deriding him. Any, nothing good can come out of that place. So how appropriate it was then for God to choose for Jesus Christ to be raised of all places, not in some cosmopolitan area, but in Nazareth. And the prophets told us, and you've seen this, let me give you one example and we'll move on. As I conclude, let me show you this. What does it say in Isaiah about what Jesus would be like? He'll be a, sh- a knight shining in arbor, and everyone will know exactly who he is, and they're going to come right to him. He'll stand one foot of tall, the other, other, all the other Jewish guys, lantern jaw, you know, deep brown olive eyes. So what, it says he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a dry root, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. It says right. In Isaiah 53, and no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces. And then it goes on to say, surely he has borne our sorrows and carried our griefs. Yet, even though he did that for us, we esteemed him not. Yeah, there's, there's a Nazarene quality to him, right? A Nazareth kind of background. And yet, out of that shame, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is there like Buddha, there's Confucius, there's Mary Eddie Baker, there's Joseph Smith, there's Muhammad, oh, and there's Joseph, uh, Jesus. Just, you know, he's in the pantheon. Got all these bobblehead gods, and he's just there. Is that who Jesus is? No, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. What I'm trying to say is, out of that, quote, shameful background, he is the king of kings. And listen, 
if a king came out of that kind of background, he is a king that can give anyone here hope in the face of the shame that you experience. Have you experienced shame because of things you've done in the last month, year, two years? And by the way, it is good to experience shame when we need to experience shame because it's, it's a little engine light that says, mm, I better lift up the hood and look underneath there before I throw a rod into eternity, to use that car analogy. And sometimes, yeah, we, we experience shame not because of something that we've done, but something that's been horrifically done to us. That's misplaced shame. But it can still torment people. We can feel so dirty. We can feel so inadequate. We can feel so insignificant. And just like I said a few minutes ago, when you turn to Jesus Christ, he pulls you out of the slop as you turn to the Savior. And and there's this great story in Luke 15 when he puts a ring on your finger and a robe on your back and shoes on your feet and he slays a fatted calf and he celebrates that his grace is a whole lot bigger and better than the shame that you want to identify with. He is the king who gives hope in the face of shame. So, no matter what you went through in 2022 or before, or what you might go through in 2023 or beyond, you can take heart in the king of kings who gives us hope in the face of our sin, hope in the face of our grief, and hope in the face of our shame. It's so easy to see that all the time though, right? No. Admittedly, it can be hard to see this hope sometimes, right? It can be hard. It can be really hard to see it in the suffering, in the grit, in the fog of life. The loss of the family, in the family. He or she's not at the table this Christmas. The conflict that just won't go away. Marriage that's not hitting on all cylinders. The single that has poured his or her heart out before God. I, I, I want to have a significant other and it just hasn't happened. The financial stress, the sickness, and on and on. It is hard to see the hope that Jesus offers when you're in that fog. You're like, where are you, Lord? I've been reading the Bible. I've been praying. I'm trying to serve you. I really am. And in fact, in spite of that, instead of things seeming hopeful, things can seem dark at the time when things are supposed to be the brightest, just like a Christmas tree. So I close with the story of William Cooper. C-O-W-P-E-R. Sometimes people say Cowper, but I think it's Cooper. He lived in the 1700s, and this cat had a tough, tough life. He was... He and his brother were only two of seven children his mother bore that survived past infancy. High death rate back then. In fact, his mom died when his older brother John was born, the only other survivor in the family, which left him going from boarding school to boarding school where he was not only bullied, but sometimes terribly, even brutally so. He did not have a joyful life. He finally found some joy when he's in uh, school, 
He's studying in law school. He falls in love, but then this woman's father would not let, let to Cooper take this lady's hand, and it just left him all the more crushed. He took a job as a clerk at a law firm. He experienced bouts with depression that would leave him literally on the border of insanity. After a failed attempt, and there were many, on his own life, he was sent to an asylum. And in God's kindness, and God's providence, the doctor who was assigned to care for him was a Christian man named Nathaniel Cotton. And he showed him and he shared with him the love of Jesus Christ. And one day, Cooper's eyes fell on an open Bible and he came across Romans 3.25, which says, God set forth Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. And bam, the lights went on and he responded to Jesus Christ and he was gloriously converted. Went on to write many beautiful worship songs, one of which we're about to sing together. Now, salvation gifted this man a new heart, but it did not end his bouts with melancholy. But every 10 years, he would have a severe bout of depression, some that were just downright paralyzing and crippling. One time he was hit, one year he was hit so hard, it happened every 10 years about January 10th, is what he writes, for whatever reason. One year he was hit so hard, he once again decided, I am going to take my life. So he orders a carriage at that time, that was a taxi, a carriage, horse-drawn carriage, to take him to the Thames River where he has decided he's going to plunge himself to a watery death. As he's loading up in the carriage, a storm rolls in, this London fog you've heard about, thick as pea soup. And, and the taxi driver just couldn't make his way around the city, so ends up saying, I, I, I can't get to the river. Maybe he knew what was going on, I don't know. And he just drops him at his front door. That storm was something that God used to save his physical life. But as Cooper contemplated all that happened that night, he went on to write a song which now is called God Moves, but original title, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I want you to read those lyrics before we rise and sing those lyrics in just a moment. Not your standard Christmas song, but I think in light of Matthew 2, 13 through 26, a very appropriate Christmas song. Listen to these words. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Oh, fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. So, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And there's a refrain in the, in the modern rendition that goes something like, so I will trust him, so I will trust him. And that's really the call of this message tonight. 
Will I trust in Jesus Christ, the king of hope, in the face of the pain of my sin? Will I trust in Jesus Christ, the king of hope, in the face of the pain of my grief? And will I trust in Jesus Christ in the face of the pain of my shame? He's not just a concept and a religious figure. He is the living Savior who will fellowship with you as you bring your stuff to him tonight. See, Christmas and the cross are prime exhibit A of how God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. So even when you can't see it, take to heart the fact that Jesus is the King of hope. Father, I ask that you would use this message to minister grace to those who need hope in the face of their sin, to those who need hope in the face of their grief, and to those who need hope in the face of their shame. I pray, Father, that you would open up our understanding of the gospel, that it's not just about getting us to heaven, but there's so much here. And so much we, misery we don't have to experience if we would choose to walk in your ways as reflected in your word. I pray, Father, that you would have your way. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, the King of hope, would you in tailor fit, personalized way, minister this truth to each and every heart here tonight. And I, would, I pray that they would, by, <laughs> by the work of your spirit in their heart, respond and say, yes, Lord, yes. I turn and I trust Jesus Christ, the King of hope. In whose name I pray, amen.